Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Beth Malden, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Susan Jakes about her new book, The Caesar of Paris, Napoleon Bonaparte, Rome, and the Artistic Obsession that Shaped an Empire. Susan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to write about this topic? Well, I'm an author based in Los Angeles. Um, I had written a biography of Russia's Catherine the Great called The Empress of Art um, back in 2016, looking at her reign through the lens of art and architecture. And I recall that at the very end of her life um, in 1796, one of the last things that she does is send the Russian army after this young general, Napoleon Bonaparte, who's in his 20s and is tearing through northern Italy. Uh, and, um, of course, uh, that wasn't successful, but, um, I started to become very interested in Napoleon and especially, um, the the art and architecture, um, during his reign. And it led me to, um, a very interesting topic, which is his fascination, really an obsession with antiquity from early on as a, as a young a student um, when his uh, heroes became the great military commanders of antiquity, like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. Um, and that continues. And so I set out to write a book to examine um, um, the implications of this in his interest in antiquity. Mm-hmm. Well, as you point out in your book, Napoleon had no hereditary claim to rule. So one way to establish the legitimacy of his power was to associate himself with uh, Roman emperors and leaders like Alexander the Great and Charlemagne, and also to associate himself with the great civilization of ancient Rome. Early on in his military career, he began looting the artwork from the Papal States during his campaign in Italy to take back to France. And could you talk about some of the works that were taken? Yes, Napoleon is responsible for a mass looting. It starts in Italy, as you mentioned, in the Papal States early on when he's a young general and then continues throughout his reign um, across Austria, Prussia, and Spain. His goal was to make Paris the most beautiful capital, in his words, in the universe. And um, so art was a part of that goal. And what he took from Rome early on were 100 uh, masterpieces. It was um, the Treaty of Tolentino, the Pope at the time, Pius VI, was forced to cede treasures from the Vatican and also the churches of Rome. And among those sculptures, the works are very famous, um, including the Apollo Belvedere, who was regarded as the epitome of 
uh, male beauty, and also the Liaquan, this group sculpture that depicts uh, the Trojan priest and his sons being strangled by serpents. Michelangelo called this sculpture, this marble, the greatest work ever made. Um, so these are just two of the 83 sculptures that Napoleon brings back to the Louvre, and that's just the beginning of what becomes another about 15 or 16 years of, of art plunder. Mm-hmm. Well, you also talk about Veronese's wedding at Cana, which has a fascinating backstory to it as well, and also very painful to read about what they did to this work to transport it back to Paris. Yes. So one of uh, Napoleon's victories is um, over the Republic of Venice. And, um, you know, Venice was a republic for some 1,000 years, has a great tradition of art. And um, when Napoleon... um, troops invade, um, they wind up um, ending that republic and also taking artworks. One of the most famous is that Veronese's a monumental painting from the refectory at the San Giorgio Maggiore, which is just across the, the canal from um, St. Mark's. And uh, it was commissioned, the monks commissioned Veronese to, cre- to create this monumental painting for their uh, refectory. The French troops cut it into pieces. It was so large um, that to get it to Paris, they actually cut it in pieces. Um, and it, it became one of the masterworks at the Louvre. Yeah, and it's actually still there today, which we will talk about later at the end of our interview. Um, But speaking of the Louvre, Napoleon turned to Dominique Vivant Denon to help him achieve his artistic vision and his desire to turn France into this culturally superior country. Who was Denon and what was his role in shaping Napoleon's artistic vision? Well, Danone had a very key role. He had accompanied Napoleon uh, to uh, on the uh, Egypt campaign um, in 1798, and he went along as one of the civilian savants, and he was actually an artist, and he sketched um, all the various pyramids and uh, of, of Egypt. He was embedded with the uh, French army, and when he goes back uh, with Napoleon, he goes back to Paris, he winds up publishing a very important book, um, uh, travels in Upper and Lower Egypt. It became an immediate bestseller. It was published in many different languages. Um, and he, it, it was uh, contained his sketches and basically um, extolling the, the ancient civilization of Egypt. Um, and of course, he dedicated that book uh, Napoleon. And Napoleon rewarded him with, uh, by promoting him to be the first uh, director of the museum. And very soon after, Danone uh, renames, the, he proposes to Napoleon that the museum be renamed the Musée Napoleon. And um, he became, it was known as Napoleon's eye. He was the one who would actually identify artworks to be uh, removed from the various countries that the French army was conquering and brought back to the Louvre. And he was very influential. Um, his responsibilities grew from there. He was very involved with many of the iconic uh, uh, monuments throughout Paris. Uh, he had a whole um, medallic program he organized for Napoleon. Um, so he was really his uh, cultural minister. So he played a really key role um, up until the end. And he was also in charge of cultivating Napoleon's heroic image. And he employed a host of painters and sculptors to create and reinforce that idea. And you write that the famous Italian sculptor Antonio Canova 
was less than enthusiastic about creating this kind of propaganda, even though Napoleon repeatedly commissioned him for sculptures and busts of himself and his family. And these two men had a, a complicated relationship, to say the least. That's right. And it's a very interesting relationship because on the one hand, um, Antonio Canova, he was celebrated across Europe as the one of the greatest artists, not just sculptors, neoclassical sculptor. He's based in Rome, but he's from a small town north of Venice, Pisano. And he had trained as a young man. Uh, he had apprenticed uh, to a sculptor in Venice. And so he really resented the treatment of Venice by the French, um, he also uh, resented the treatment of Rome. And so he's very torn. He's very conflicted when he's being asked to um, uh, produce the, you know, monumental sculptures and basically memorialize Napoleon and his family members in, in marble um, because he was not uh, um, in favor of, uh, he was not a Bonapartist at all. Um, and what's interesting is the Pope, uh, now this is Pius VII, who is elected Pope in Venice in 1800, right around the time Napoleon seizes power in a coup and becomes first consul, um, the Pope sends Canova, he tells Canova when he summons to Paris in 1802 by Napoleon um, to sculpt him, uh, Canova actually says no, he doesn't want to go, but uh, the Pope convinces him to go and he really becomes Pius's uh, diplomatic envoy. Um, they, despite a concordat that Napoleon and the Pope signed in 1801, there's a great um, conflicts um, between the Catholic Church and and France, and so the Pope was hoping that Canova can um, improve relations between uh, Napoleon and the Church, and so he wears uh, two different hats. You know, he's both the sculptor, um, and he comes back to France in 1810 when Napoleon remarries um, to sculpt Napoleon's new wife, um, but he's also um, at the same time, trying to uh, lobby for uh, for Rome and on behalf of the Pope. So it's a very interesting uh, relationship. I mean, of course, I just want to add at the end, when Napoleon's defeated, it's Canova that the Pope sends to try to get back um, the stolen artwork right. from Rome. Yeah, and we're, we'll talk about that um, when we talk about the repatriation of art. And I'd like to talk a little bit about a couple of the sculptures that, that Canova made at this time. And one was of um, Napoleon's sister, Pauline Borghese, which caused quite a stir at the time. Yes, it really did. Um, so Pauline Borghese was Napoleon's favorite sister, and she was considered, you know, one of the great beauties of Europe. Um, Canova sculpts her um, as Venus Victrix, um, the, the great beauty, um, holding the apple. Um, she's won the beauty contest, and but he sculpts her. Um, she's actually reclining on, uh, she's in marble on a marble um, couch, but she's topless. And so, yes, um, this is actually commissioned by her husband. Early in their marriage, um, Napoleon marries her off to um, the head of the Borghese family, uh, Camillo Borghese, who's a family uh, amassed an amazing art collection um, over hundreds of years that included antiquities that Napoleon wound up buying, purchasing, um, that are still at the Louvre. Uh, but yes, that, that sculpture, it's considered one of Canova's greatest masterpieces. And today it's on view at, it's one of the masterworks at the um, Borghese uh, Villa, uh, the Gallery Borghese in Rome. 
Uh, mm -hmm. And yes, uh, her husband was not very pleased. Camilla Borghese had it hidden away. He was rather <laughs> uh, shocked by the uh, the nudity um, of that depiction. Right. Well, speaking of nudity, um, the other <laughs> the other uh, sculpture that I would like to talk about is Napoleon as Mars, the Peacemaker, um, which is another very famous work by Canova, which was not put on display. That's right. So back in 1802, when Canova first visits uh, Paris, uh, he sculpts a bust of Napoleon, and they he's hired to create a monumental, um, f f uh, larger-than-life statue of Napoleon, who at this time is first consul. He's not emperor yet. This is 1802. And um, they discuss um, this, and uh, Napoleon does not want to be portrayed in the nude, and uh, and he finally um, gives up because Canova is so insistent that this is um, the appropriate, the heroic way to um, depict a hero. Um, so he's depicting him as the Roman guard Mars, but as Mars the peacemaker. Um, the interesting part of this sculpture is what this sculpture finally arrives in Paris in 1811. So now nine years have gone by and um, Napoleon has become rather portly. And um, so as the story goes, when Napoleon uh, goes over to the Louvre to, for the unveiling of this monumental 11 foot um, sculpture of himself, um, completely nude, um, he, you know, he takes one look at it and just um, hates it. Uh, it. It was very embarrassing to him and he doesn't, um, you know, want anyone to see it. So it's kind of hidden away. And then when he's defeated, um, it's actually sold. Uh, Louis XVIII sells the statue to the British government who gives it to the Duke of Wellington, who defeats uh -huh. Napoleon at Waterloo as a thank you gift. <laughs> and, and Wellington installs it in his home, uh, Apsley House in London, um, quite prominently at the foot of the staircase. And it's still there. And so it's very right. ironic that, um, you know, you can see uh, this nude statue of Napoleon at the, uh, the home of his great uh, nemesis, uh, the Duke of Wellington. Um, so let's talk a little bit about architecture and Napoleon's impact on the city of Paris. And you have the famous quote from Napoleon where he says that men are only as great as the monuments they leave. And he was inspired by ancient Roman leaders when he ordered the building of arches and columns that glorified his military conquests. So let's start with the arches. What was the significance of the arch in Roman culture? Yes. So the arch, you know, famously, the Romans used arches. You know, if you think about the great aqueducts that brought water to the city of Rome, and you think about the Colosseum, it was one of their great engineering feats. And so from Augustus on, the triumphal arch um, became associated with imperial power, that, that, that is the Caesars. Um, and it, it really commemorated their victories, their military victories, in a very lasting form. And so Napoleon, as you mentioned that quote, um, that men are only as great as the monuments they leave behind, he was all about monumentality. So um, he was interested in building monuments that would last, um, just as these triumphal arches, many of them have survived in Rome. And of course, Napoleon also saw the great pyramids and sphinxes of ancient Egypt when he invades Egypt. So um, he's thinking about the a type of architecture building this. And after he uh, defeats Austria and Russia at Austerlitz, the Battle of Austerlitz, he tells his soldiers right after that victory um, that you will return 
through um, Arches of Triumph. So he goes back to Paris and he commissions two very famous uh, monuments. Um, one is probably the most famous uh, monument in Paris. That's the Arc de Triomphe de Toile by at the top of the Champs Elysees. That's was recently in the news a lot because of the Yellow Vest protest uh, started there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was actually based on um, a very famous uh, Roman arch, the Arch of Titus. Um, so it's a single arch. And what Napoleon's architect, a uh, man by the name of Shalgrin, did was he supersized it. He kept the exact same proportions as the Arch of Titus and um, just made it much, much bigger. And that arch took a very long time. It was not completed uh, in Napoleon's lifetime. Um, it, it wasn't completed until about 1836 um, under King Louis-Philippe. But it became um, you know, one of the icons of Paris. So Napoleon's second um, triumphal arch was the Arc de Triomphe du Carousel, which is located between the Tuileries Palace and the Louvre. Uh, The Tuileries Palace uh, was most unfortunately burned down during the Paris Commune, so it no longer stands. But at the time, it was the seat of power for Napoleon. And um, Napoleon's favorite designers that's Charles Percier and Pierre Fontaine. They designed um, this smaller arch based on two Roman prototypes. And they actually used colored marbles. And it was uh, quite a beautiful, um, quite a beautiful arch. Um, and interestingly, uh, it was topped by four very famous horses from St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice, which were stolen um, as part of the the art pillage, and they uh, those four horses were created, it's believed, in Rome. So they're ancient um, bronze horses that were placed on top of this arch to cap it all off with a statue of Napoleon driving the quadriga, as uh, the Roman uh, Caesars would have done in the, uh, the Great Triumphs. He also had a column built in the Place Vendôme, which today, of course, is where the Hotel Ritz is located. Um, what was the model for this column? Yes, that's also um, spectacular. Uh, the model was Trajan's column, which um, you know is one of the fantastic sculptures from antiquity um, that was designed uh, for Trajan's Forum. That was really the last part of the Forum, which is a uh, designed with uh, depicting scenes from the um, tra- uh, Trajan Emperor Trajan's wars against the Dacians. He fought two wars, and um, scenes from those wars were carved in marble, uh, marble drums, and they spiraled up this uh, amazing tower. Um, so actually, Napoleon wanted to dismantle uh, Trajan's column and have it um, uh, installed in Paris. Fortunately, Danone and some other advisors dissuaded him of that. It was 1,100 tons. And instead, Danone suggested that they build Napoleon his own column. And it was called at first the Austerlitz column after his great victory, and then renamed um, today the Vendome column. Um, And it depicts uh, uh, Napoleon's victory at Austerlitz, and interestingly, instead of marble, it was made of bronze uh, melted down from enemy cannons. So the uh, the bronze um, was uh, the material substituted for the ancient marble. Mm-hmm. And he was depicted in ancient Roman toga. Is that correct? 
That's right. So um, he was t- the top was um, the sculpture of Napoleon in the Roman toga, and this is really part of um, what became Napoleon's iconography. You know, when he names himself emperor in 1804, he proclaims himself emperor of France and empire, no longer a republic. Um, you start to see um, artists and sculptors now depicting him in the Roman toga, uh, wearing a laurel wreath in his hair. So very much um, drawing on. Um, you know, his, his role models, the, the Roman Caesars. Um, and interestingly, you know, we talked about the Tuileries Palace being burned down during the Paris Commune. Um, the uh, Austerlitz column was toppled. The, the, the Commune voted to topple that column. Um, and when it was rebuilt, there, uh, there was a new statue of Napoleon. Um, well, it had a different, it was topped by different statues, but ultimately the statue of Napoleon was, uh, the toga was replaced with a military um, costume. Now let's turn to the coronation of Napoleon that took place in Notre Dame in 1804. And Napoleon famously said, I have dethroned no one. I found the crown in the gutter, I picked it up, and the people put it on my head. And most enthusiasts of French history know that Napoleon crowned himself emperor during the ceremony. But in your book, you provide these really interesting details and context um, for the ceremony. Could you talk a little bit about the background and the context of that? Yeah, so um, it's very, very interesting because um, after Napoleon declares himself emperor, he visits Aachen. um, And that was uh, the Uh, the seat of power for Charlemagne. You mentioned Charlemagne earlier on. So um, when Napoleon becomes emperor, he starts to um, invoke Charlemagne. Charlemagne, of course, was um, the Frankish king who is really a warrior king who takes over much of Western Europe. And um, he, uh, he, actually becomes a role model for Napoleon, um, because this is exactly what Napoleon's political um, mission is at this point, is to take over uh, Western Europe. Um, And so he visits Aachen, and um, so he incorporates into his coronation a lot of uh, imagery uh, from Charlemagne. Um, so he gets Percier and Fontaine, the, those, the fellows who designed the Arc de Triomphe du Carousel, to decorate Notre Dame Cathedral both inside and out. And um, so Notre Dame Cathedral was very much um, um, abused during the, the French Revolution. It sustained a lot of damage um, and it was used uh, at one point as uh, for, for wine storage. Um, so it um, had to be um, um, redecorated. And so Percier and Fontaine, the, the, uh, the decorative um, scheme for the coronation is um, evoking both antiquity, Roman antiquity, and um, Charlemagne. And uh, so uh, it's very interesting, the quote that you mentioned, because Napoleon, he invites, well, he really summons as the Pope doesn't so much invite him, but demands that the Pope come um, to the coronation from Rome, travel to Paris, um, and and participate. And of course, the Pope thinks that he is going to crown Napoleon as um, Charlemagne was crowned by the Pope in in, uh, in Rome in 800, the first Ro- Holy Roman Emperor. So the Pope Pius VII expects that he's going to do the same. So he, he, he is shocked and everyone there is shocked in Notre Dame Cathedral when Napoleon crowns himself in a very um, dramatic moment. And he's basically saying that he doesn't owe his power to 
to the church or to um, anyone else. But as you said, the people um, put the crown on Napoleon's head. Um, so it's a very dramatic ceremony. Um, Napoleon spared no expense. Um, he had Charlemagne's crown, a replica made of Charlemagne's crown, along with a crown um, of gold laurel leaves evoking um, the Roman Caesars. Um, and so it's quite the, the splendid occasion. Well, he also had um, the artist Jacques-Louis David document the ceremony and his famous painting, The Coronation of Napoleon, hangs in the Louvre um, to this day, of course. And it's 30, 33 feet wide. It's 20 feet tall. And it's just a stunning work of art. Yes, it's, it's, it's a monumental artwork. Uh, and very interesting story. So um, Napoleon names David, his first painter, his first painter of the emperor. Um, and David is actually at Notre Dame for the coronation with his sketch pad. He's sitting there sketching um, December 2nd, 1804. And um, Napoleon actually hired David to create four um, paintings in a series for his coronation. He doesn't wind up doing completing the whole series, but uh, this particular, the first, the Sacre that you are talking about is a huge success. Um, but what's very interesting to me is that Napoleon had made some very uh, major changes. He visits David's studio. Now he's emperor and he visits David's studio um, and he sees the sketches. David originally was going to show Napoleon placing the crown on his own head. And Napoleon um, has him change that. He, he, he wanted the more um, chivalrous image of him um, anointing his wife, Josephine. So the pose is that Josephine is kneeling before him and he's placing the crown on her head. Um, so that's very interesting. He changes the, the, the that's the center uh, image of the painting. But also he makes changes like uh, the Pope um, no, David had the Pope with his hands folded. He's seated behind Napoleon, and Napoleon has him change that. So the Pope is actually giving a blessing, and he says something basically to the effect that I didn't bring the Pope all the way from Rome to have him doing nothing. <laughs> but um, he also has David insert his own mother. So his mother, uh, Leticia Bonaparte, she boycotted the ceremony because um, she really uh, did not want to see her daughter-in-law um, crowned Empress of France. She did disliked her daughter-in-law um, very much. Um, and so she she actually didn't, she wasn't there, but Napoleon has David insert her. So there's a number of really interesting ways that Napoleon um, choreographs this. And it's, like you said, it's a monumental painting. It has something like 230 figures and um, David um, worked very hard. He really saw it as his opportunity to compete with um, a few classics like Veronese's Wedding at Cana, that monumental um, painting that was taken from Venice, and also uh, Peter Paul Rubens' uh, Coronation of Marie de' Medici, another monumental series. And so David really sees this as a sort of the um, commission of his, of his life in terms of um, its importance. Let's talk now about two of the architects that you've mentioned already, Charles Percier and Pierre Fontaine. By 1803, they were working exclusively for Napoleon and Josephine, creating, as you write, quote, increasingly glamorous takes on antiquity. Um, so together, they're responsible for the creation of the 
empire style that that characterizes the Napoleonic era. Could you tell us about these two men and their inspiration for the empire style? Yes. So um, Charles Percier and Pierre Fontaine were... um, trained in Rome. Um, Percier actually won the Prix de Rome, which was uh, allowed him to study at France's Academy of Rome. And Fontaine went along with him. And so um, actually, it's very interesting. Percier actually was asked to uh, do detailed drawings of um, Trajan's column, which was the um, the model for the Vendome column. And um, both of them just loved Rome. So they're great um, lovers of antiquity in Rome. And um, while Napoleon's off invading Egypt, his wife, Josephine, bought a property, uh, Malmaison, um, outside of Paris. Um, and it's kind of a fixer-upper. And she hired these two young... Um, designers, Percier and Fontaine, um, to uh, redecorate uh, Malmaison. And so when Napoleon comes back from Egypt, he wasn't very happy with um, uh, the the debt that she had taken on. Um, and at first, he doesn't really like what they did. Uh, he calls a tent in front of Malmaison. He, he likens it to a circus tent. Um, but if they're starting to create what becomes known later as the empire style, which is sort of a militaristic take on neoclassicism. So um, they're adding um, various, um, uh, you know, to the various icons from antiquity. Um, They're sort of making it even more masculine in a way and more militaristic. Um, And Napoleon, um, he comes around and he actually hires this team to redecorate many of the former royal palaces that were... um, ransacked during the French Revolution. Uh, Napoleon reoccupies them and he has his design team come in and redecorate in this empire style. And so you have lots of um, everything from carpets and furniture and chandeliers. Everything has um, the the symbol of the empire, which is the the Roman eagle and Napoleon's personal symbol, the bee. Um, And then you have all the various um, other images from antiquity. And so um, they were very instrumental uh, in redecorating these palaces and um, their style caught on so that um, across um, Europe and also here in in the United States, um, it was a very influential style that actually continues after Napoleon was defeated. Yeah, I have to say, I've never ever liked the empire style, but reading your book helps me appreciate it at least and and as a symbol for the Napoleonic well, era. Well, thank you. It's um, a bit much. It's a very over-the-top <laughs> style. And it's interesting when you look at, um, so Malmaison was really um, Josephine's uh, home. And after uh, Napoleon divorces her because um, she was a little bit older than he and she wasn't able to have a son, which he desperately wants, she retires to Malmaison. And, um, but even there, I mean, there's, you know, it's a very, um, distinct style. Um, and she, uh, I think she tries to soften it up a little bit with, you know, she famously, she has her uh, bed, um, having, um, swan, um, motifs and such, but yeah, it's a very distinctive style. So I want to make an abrupt leap now to the end of the Napoleonic era and the end of his reign. The 1814 Treaty of Paris ended the Napoleonic Wars, and according to the terms of the treaty, France got to keep all the looted works of art that were in the Musée Napoléon. But that spirit of generosity changed dramatically 
after Napoleon escaped from Elba and came back to France um, and was defeated again at the Battle of Waterloo. And in 1815, the Second Treaty of Paris addressed the political issue of art repatriation from Paris. And this process of repatriation is fascinating in terms of what pieces were returned, what stayed in France, and why. For example, Louis XVIII, even though he despised Napoleon, he fought to keep all of this looted work in France. Could you talk about this process of, of returning and keeping art? Yeah, so as you said, um, so at first the at the Treaty of Paris allowed the French to keep the looted art, and but after Napoleon stages a comeback, um, he escapes from his first exile, um, and he ha- has a political comeback, a military comeback known as the 100 Days, and then, uh, then the Allies finally defeat him um, in 1815 at Waterloo. Um, they are far less um, willing to uh, do that. And so it's actually the Duke of Wellington who defeats, he he had led the defeat at Waterloo, who leads the restitution effort. And he writes a letter uh, saying that um, it's important to teach the French a great moral lesson. So what you have, as you mentioned, you have Louis XVIII, the restored Bourbon king, who's the younger brother of Louis XVI, who was guillotined during the French Revolution. He's now king of France. And even though he detests Napoleon, um, he clings to the artwork saying that, you know, they were taken legally through treaties and such. And so he's... um, uh, puts his uh, foot down. And then you also have other um, people opposed to uh, the restitution, like uh, the Tsar of Russia, Alexander I, who's Catherine the Great's grandson, who um, it turns out he had a vested interest because he bought Josephine's art collection um, after her death from her heirs. And in, in that art collection were many um, looted artworks. So uh, then you have the Pope sending Antonio Canova back to Paris to try to get the art back. Um, and um, so you have all these different players. And of course, um, you've got the Prussians and um, you have, um, um, you know, all these different interests. And really, in the end, um, Antonio Canova had quite the time he goes up against Vivant Denon, who we talked about earlier, he was the uh, director of the Louvre and really Napoleon's cultural minister. And Denon does everything he can to possibly um, thwart the restitution effort. Uh, and, you know, he makes it as difficult as possible. But in the end, um, it's estimated that about half of the works that were removed by uh, the French troops during Napoleon's reign uh, were uh, returned. And um, it's a very interesting and complicated story, but there are some very famous works that um, didn't go back. <laughs> and um, One of them is the wedding of Kana, Veronese's uh, famous uh, picture. It doesn't go back. Uh, Danone claimed it was too big and fragile to travel. And now <laughs> Venice is back um, under the Austrians and they um, accepted in exchange a much lesser work by Charles Lebrun. So um, it, it really... Um, uh, it's interesting to look at what what stayed. Um, and it's kind of complicated too because a Napoleon had set up a series of provincial museums around France. There were some twenty two, 
And Danone had distributed looted work to those museums and very hard to track. And so a lot of uh, what was sent out to those uh, muse- un- uh, outlying museums stayed there. Um, and also Danone um, claimed that some works were being restored and some works were lost. And so um, in the end, it was very difficult. Um, it was a real challenge for Canova. But um, ultimately, when he goes back to Rome, um, even though they didn't get everything back, he, the Pope um, um, honors him and he's, you know, cast as a, a real hero for um, the Italians. I love this detail that you included when the Pope tapped Canova to go um, and get these works of art back. He really didn't want to go and that he even made his will uh, before he left. Her <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's that's very that's really a pretty telling yeah. detail. Um, and it was a very tense situation. And w- what happens is that basically Canova, um, fortunately, winds up getting the support of the British um, behind him, and uh, the the regent um, winds up. Um, agreeing to pay for the transport of the artworks back from Paris back to Rome. And um, in the end, Louis XVIII comes full circle and he realizes that, um, that he needs to um, get on board. Um, and I, also those bronze courses that we talked about that topped the Arc de Triomphe du Carousel, those were um, taken down um, and those were taken back, put back up at the, um, St. Mark's Cathedral and a big ceremony and very symbolic for, and I should mention that we uh, didn't mention this earlier, but those horses had actually been taken by the Venetians um, during one of the the crusades in the 13th century. Mm -hmm. So they had originally been in Constantinople, Mm -hmm. probably brought by the emperor Constantine. So yeah, so it's a really, really interesting story. Um, And you know, Danone retires as director of the Louvre, and um, he says very pessimistically that, you know, no one else is going to be able to um, appreciate the art like the French, and no one else is going to be able to take care of the art. And he also bemoans the the, the demise, you know, the, the, the dismantling of this spectacular um, museum, the world's best museum. But really, if you look at what happens in the rest of the 19th century, the Louvre Museum um, rebounds and it really, um, they they really build amazing collections of um, Egyptian antiquities and more uh, Roman antiquities throughout the rest of the 19th century. So it really um, experiences, enjoys a, a rebound. To wrap up our conversation, I want to talk about the legacy of Napoleon. And you, in your final chapter, you talk about how Louis XVIII tried in vain to erase the public memory of Napoleon. He had Napoleon's statue on top of the Vendome column replaced by the fleur-de-lis flag. He had many of the paintings of the emperor burned. Um, he, as you said earlier, he sold Canova's sculpture Napoleon is Mars the peacemaker to the British government, which is the ultimate insult. And despite these efforts, you say that Napoleon remained woven into the fabric of the capital. And in a sense, the rehabilitation of his image is similar to Julius Caesar after his assassination. Well, that's right. Um, So what happens when Napoleon um, dies in 1821, he's sent his second exile to um, St. Helena, um, which there's no escape from. Um, 
what happens is he a cult develops around him. So like you said, no matter what the Bourbon kings, Louis XVIII and Charles X did, they really couldn't um, really couldn't um, hurt his popularity. It just seemed to grow. And he's even his his remains are repatriated in 1840 um, with a big national funeral. Um, and he is it's very dramatic. His cortege pauses under the Arc de Triomphe. Um, at the Champs-Élysées before proceeding to Les Invalides where um, he, he was buried in a very dramatic crypt. Um, so yes, I mean, he has a very complex legacy, you know, um, in the mid century of Napoleon's nephew, um, it becomes president um, and then ultimately proclaims himself emperor uh, as Napoleon III. And so, um, you know, in a way, I think that reflects um, his uncle's uh, popularity um, that, that uh, despite being defeated, um, you know, he really had um, a, a tremendous impact and, um, you know, very complicated legacy, I think for um when we look at him today, you know, he's a figure that is both admired by Winston Churchill and Adolf Hitler. So, um, you know, he's he's a very complicated uh, legacy to um, interpret. But um, in the end, you mentioned Julius Caesar. And yes, in the end, while well, he's in exile on St. Helena, he has a lot of time on his hands. He's really bored. And so he reads Caesar's Wars. Caesar was a great writer. And he uh, concludes um, that Caesar was, in fact, Julius Caesar was, in fact, um, you know, a great leader, a great general, um, and you know, is very sympathetic. Um, so uh, the, the two of them have um, have been compared um, both favorably and unfavorably toward each other. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a very interesting legacy. But when you think about um, you know some of the lasting monuments, I think when we think of Paris, you know, we have to think about um, you know, the monuments that Napoleon built, which were um, really modeled after ancient Rome. Well, Susan, I could talk about this book forever. The details are just amazing. But thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks, Beth. I really enjoyed it. We've been talking with Susan Jakes about her new book, The Caesar of Paris, Napoleon Bonaparte, Rome, and the Artistic Obsession that Shaped an Empire. Thanks for listening to New Books in History a podcast channel on the New Books Network.